This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know that feeling when you have something that's really been bothering you, or when you've been fixating on something in your life that's looming large in your mind? We all carry around different stressors in our lives, big and small, and I think we inherently know that when we keep them bottled up inside, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest, and to figure out how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. Therapy isn't just for people who have experienced major trauma. There are plenty of benefits it can have for everyone. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. And don't underestimate the power of boundaries either. Those are super important. If you've been wondering if you should give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's a fully online experience and designed from the ground up to be convenient and customizable to your schedule. To get started, you just have to fill out a brief questionnaire that will match you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash filmdaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash filmdaily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Friday, December 1st, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news and then also gather around the virtual water cooler to talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor BJ Colangelo. Hi, hi, hiya. All right, BJ, let's talk about some news stuff. Uh, we got to talk about that Furiosa trailer. We'll get to that in just a minute. But um, before we do that, there are a couple of uh, horror sequels that are on the horizon, and you being very much tapped into the horror community, I wondered how you feel about these. So Thanksgiving 2 is coming from Eli Roth, and then The Black Phone 2 is also in the works, and that one's going to be bringing back the major cast, including Ethan Hawke, which is... Um, interesting if you've seen Mm -hmm. the black Mm -hmm. phone so (laughs) yeah i'm guessing that's i mean sorry if you haven't seen the black phone we're probably just going to be talking about that the movie came out a little while ago so uh what's your read on on both of these bj so i'm pretty excited for both of them uh the the thanksgiving one i think is it's just a kind of a no-brainer it's a slasher film it did really well it's an original slasher, so it's not yet become a legacy sort of series. But, you know, who knows? Maybe if the next one's really good, it'll eventually become a legacy series. And we will get, you know, new Thanksgiving slashers every year the same way that we would get, like, Saw movies every year. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um I I think that it's cool that people are willing to invest in a new horror slasher instead of just giving us, you know, the 75th reboot of Halloween. Um, But... I'm extremely interested in the Black Phone 2 specifically because the Black Phone was based on Joe Hill's short story. So there was source material there. Once you have a sequel, you no longer have that source material. So you kind of can do whatever you want, uh, which I think is really interesting. And the fact that they're bringing back Ethan Hawke, who, spoiler for a movie that's been out for a while, uh, is dead is really interesting because the black phone is also a story that deals with ghosts. So like, are we getting ghost Ethan Hawk? What mm-hmm. are we getting? I, I just, I have questions. I want to know. I'm very excited. I think the black phone is fantastic. Um, so I, I'm all about this. I can't wait to see what kind of bananas direction this is going to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is his name? Mason Thames. Is that right? The actor who yes. played the main character, or the main kid. And then um, Madeline McGraw. She was also great. She's coming back as well. Both of them are. And then um, Jeremy Davies is coming back as their dad, who mm-hmm. was like this sort of um, deadbeat drunken character. And, and they had like a really interesting moment at the very end of that movie as sort of like, 
uh, I don't know if you'd fall, call it like a full on reconciliation, but like mm-hmm. a, a very dramatic moment. And so the fact that all three of them are coming back means that that, that whole family's story is going to continue in what I presume will be a fascinating way. So um, I, I just like Jeremy Davies a lot as an actor. And I feel like that that was him in like very, very dark and serious mode. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I'm wondering like how, it, you know, what the evolution of that character is going to look like, even though he's sort of like just on the edges of, of the story. He's never, he's not like a, a main character, but uh, anyway, yeah, just curious about that. And then yeah. also like, uh, what do you think about the kills? Have, have you seen Thanksgiving yet? Yeah. So they're okay. fun. They're like super fun. And I love any movie that commits to the bit. Like that is, if you are making a Thanksgiving horror movie, I want kills that can only exist on Thanksgiving. And that's what I got. So I want to know how they're going to do it for, you know, <laughs> for, for your second plate. What's what's yeah. coming? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I sort of, um, I don't know, argued is too strong of a word, but I disagreed with Jacob about the, the tone of some of the kills. Um, but it sounds like you're much more on his side of this argument, but um, I'm mm-hmm. yeah curious just to see like, how far they continue to sort of ramp things up because it got pretty ridiculous in the first movie. So like how far uh, is too far? Is there such a thing as too far in a Thanksgiving themed horror movie? I don't know. I guess we'll find out. I mean, Um, it's, it's a holiday that's based on like actual genocide. Um, So I feel like (laughs) there's no such thing as too far. We already did it with our own history. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, Okay. So I also know that you are a fan of uh, the boys and the boys spinoff. I think it's called, is it Gen V? Is that right? Oh, I love Gen V. Okay. Yeah. I have not seen any of the boys. I haven't seen any of Gen V. Um, so I'm like completely out of the loop on this, but I know that there was a new spinoff announced called the boys colon Mexico that is going to be run by Gareth Dunnett Alcocare, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's one of the writers of, um, the blue beetle movie. And then, uh, Gabriel Luna and Gail Garcia Bernal are going to be on board as executive producers and they'll probably act in the show in some small capacity. I don't think they're going to be lead roles, but, uh, that is the, the sort of trio that is looking to bring, um, this new show into the boys universe and expand this property even further. So as somebody who is, uh, who has watched this stuff and is really, especially into uh, Gen V, what do you make of this like ongoing expansion of the boys universe? Oh, I'm so about this. Um, because the thing that the boys does really well is they establish how this, you know, this world of soups exists globally. Um, so there's so much room for expansion. Um, I think that Blue Beetle got a lot of undeserved hate from a lot of people. It's a bummer that most people missed it. I thought it was really fun. So I I think the, like the people behind Blue Beetle are a really good choice in writing the story because they understand the sense of humor that also comes with the boys but also getting like gail garcia bernal and diego luna is like perfect in my opinion because (laughs) they also understand this kind of tone based on some of like the stuff they've worked on before but I, i like i love this idea this is like a little bit of shade not super shade but when like they announced citadel and it was like it's citadel and there's gonna be citadel in all of these other countries and it's gonna be this you know global spy thing i was like eh okay but somebody saying that about the boys, I'm like, nope, I'm on board. Like, this is great. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's talk now about the Furiosa trailer. This is a movie that I think a oh lot of people <laughs> have been waiting for for a long time. Uh, your reaction right there sort of uh, indicates to me what you thought about this. But BJ, what did you think about this trailer? Let's go. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So I... Um, 
you know, in George Miller, we trust, right? Like I, I'm so excited to see him back in this mode. Uh, I was one of those psychos who did not love Fury Road the first time that I saw it. I think um, I've, I've read the oral history by Kyle Buchanan. I interviewed him on this podcast and that book gave me a lot um, bigger um, appreciation for that movie, just getting into like the true insanity of the behind the scenes of like exactly what went on to make that movie and how many years it took and all of that, like getting into those details. I don't know how anybody could read that book and then come away, not, you know, just completely floored by what we got uh, out of that first um, out of uh, Fury Road, rather um, Furiosa. I, I was not like as sold on in terms of just uh, as being a concept. Like I, I really like Charlie's her performance in that movie, but like uh, I was kind of like ah, recasting going younger, like, I'm not sure about this on paper. Um, did you have any of those reservations? And then were they uh, obliterated by the trailer? Or <laughs> t- Talk me through your headspace going into this. All right. So I love Fury Road. Uh, have always loved Fury Road. Never, never had the doubt at all. And Furiosa is one of my favorite, you know, contemporary heroines. Like I love her. And so when they announced the Furiosa you know, I guess prequel is the best way to establish this. I was like, mm, I, uh, I, I'm cautiously optimistic. Like I, I Miller's not going to lead me astray, but there's a lot of big changes. I also, at this point was not super sold on Anya Taylor joy yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was a little hesitant, but in the year since they've been making this, obviously um, I get to see her in bigger movies. I got to fall in love with her performance in the menu. And it's like, okay, no, now I'm back on board. And then I saw this trailer and I was like, Oh yeah, I have no doubt this is going to like totally melt my face. I'm very excited. <laughs> so what do you think about Chris Hemsworth in this? Like I, it took me oh, a second all about it. <laughs> to, to like even recognize him because of the, uh, whatever that is, facial prosthetics and, and whatever it is that he's wearing the the whole look and aesthetic of his character um and just the fact that he's wearing this red cape like very much like thor is kind of mm-hmm. a that's certainly a choice but uh yeah what do you think <laughs> about him like and the whole thing that he's doing in this oh i'm so about it first off getting to actually hear chris hemsworth be australian what a treat um i don't know what it is but it's like it's specifically with like Australian and people from New Zealand that when they get to actually speak, like Tony Klutz, another one where I'm like, Oh, what a treat. This is mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Very excited about it. Um, but I love that. Like he looks kind of gross. Like he's obviously really filthy because everybody in the Mad Max world's filthy, but he's got like the facial prosthetics so that he doesn't look like Thor. Um, but he, he's got his cape on. So it's like, Oh you think you're so cool. I love characters like this. I love a guy who thinks he's way cooler than he actually is. I love those guys. So I'm very excited. Yeah. Uh, I have seen a lot of people sort of complaining about the, the um, I guess you would call it like the maybe overabundance of CG in this trailer. And uh, I have to admit, like when I first watched it, I I was loving like the... Um, the story aspects of it and and sort of like the uh, shot composition and all that kind of stuff. But like the color is so heightened and like, so um, it's been a while since I'd seen a Fury Road. So I kind of forgot that he's like really all in on uh, bumping the contrasts up and like really, really um, bringing this world to life in a very, very heightened way. So I think a lot of people may be uh, conflating the the visual style that he's bringing to this with you know like quote unquote bad cg or something and then also i just want people to remember like 
uh, I saw somebody make this observation that like, you know, this happens all the time where we see an early teaser or something for a movie and it looks a little iffy. And then by the time the actual movie comes out, those things have been smoothed out or ironed out or whatever. And like, it looks much better. So uh, for anyone out there, like I, I know that this has not been like received with um, glowing praise across the board, even uh, <laughs> even Ryan Scott, who's on this podcast a lot, had the uh, the bravery to go on Twitter and be like, I don't know, guys, am I the only one that's uh, like, am I allowed to say that I didn't like fall head over heels for this? Um, You're allowed so- to say it. <laughs> Well, just I just wanted to address the the uh, listeners out there who may be feeling more on on Ryan's side of things, and just try to like provide some uh, I don't know uh, data points. I'm not going to actually sit here and go through movies that have <laughs> released trailers that looked iffy and then turned out well, but uh, that kind of thing has happened a bunch of times in the past. So maybe if that does anything to sort of um, I don't know assuage people's uh, hesitation or whatever. Um, but yeah, man, I'm just like I'm so excited to see George Miller like get back into this mode of, of directing where he's just like locked in doing his thing. I mean, it's so like singular that vision and like you can tell that so much of this is done practically, even if there is a bunch of CG enhancement. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't think it's going to be quite as bonkers as Fury Road from, from this trailer anyway. And I saw um, Chris Evangelista share on Twitter as well uh, that um, there is an excerpt from that Kyle Buchanan book called uh, Blood and... Blood and Chrome? Is Blood that the and name Chrome. Yeah. Uh, where some of the people who worked on Fury Road, a lot of the same crew members, uh, came over and worked on Furiosa as well. And they said something along the lines of like, Furiosa is a much more traditional sort of like three-act structure thing instead of um, Fury Road, which is much more of like a chase movie, basically. And like the, the entire structure of Fury Road is like a chase out into the middle of the desert and they just turn around and drive back, like cha- a chase back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the things that I sort of bumped up against a little bit. Um, in my first viewing of that movie. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to um, seeing, you know, that insane George Miller uh, visual palette and all of that um, overlaid onto a story that's a little bit different than what we saw in Fury Road. So yeah, and uh, I think that's the best way to approach it. Because if it if it was another chase movie, then everybody in the audience would just be comparing it as like a one to one the entire time. And that's clearly not what he's trying to do. So mm-hmm. I think it's smart. I think it's really, really smart. And I'm all about the visual style. Like I love it. Everything has been looking so drab lately. Give me pops of color. <laughs> For sure. Okay, uh, let's take a break and then we'll come back and jump into the water cooler for a little bit. All right, BJ, let's get into what we've been doing, what we've been reading, what we've been watching, eating. Uh, I haven't really been doing much. I did just want to mention that one thing that I've been doing today is getting mad at Bob Iger for his comments that he made yesterday about the Marvels. So I had yesterday off, so I didn't see this, uh, but man, I was, this really rubbed me the wrong way. So uh, Bob Iger, uh, the CEO of Disney, appeared at uh, the New York Times Dealbook Summit yesterday and made what I thought to be an extremely condescending remark about the Marvels and Nia DaCosta, the director of that movie. He said, the Marvels was shot during COVID. There wasn't as much supervision on the set, so to speak, where we have executives there really looking over what's being done day after day after day. And like, bro, I'm sorry, but like, <laughs> what are you doing? Why on earth would you talk about this as if Nia DaCosta is a child who needs adults in the room to keep her from making too much of a mess? Like this supervision comment is so condescending and just so like, 
him throwing one of his own filmmakers under the bus. And like, we've talked about this already on this podcast, but the Marvels has gotten such vitriol and such like terrible uh, reaction because the movie has not performed very well at the box office. It's, it's Marvel's worst performing movie so far. And uh, we've said before, like this is not Nia DaCosta's fault. Like this is a, an accumulation of a bunch of different factors that, you know, came into play for why people decided, Hey, I'm probably just going to wait for Disney plus to watch this. Um, and so for him to like, basically, uh, not in, I mean, it, it is like, it, it, he didn't literally say the words Nia DaCosta is a child, but like talking about supervision on the set, like that is such a, um, you can very easily read between the lines there. And that is not something that I feel like the CEO of the Walt Disney company should be talking about. So I don't know, BJ, am I like, off my rocker here like what what was your reaction to that oh i i co-sign everything that you're saying so hard that my wrist snaps off of my my body <laughs> um I, I thought it was so unprofessional to say something like that, especially in a public forum, especially where it's obviously going to be turned into a headline because as we've been seeing for weeks, even before the Marvels came out, it almost feels like there was this anticipation that it wasn't going to do well because of those cumulative factors that you were talking about. Like people were talking about like, I'm going to wait for it to go on Disney plus, or I have superhero fatigue or whatever countless reasons why people were not interested going up to it. And then we started seeing, all of these headlines in the trades where it was like Nia DaCosta did this Nia DaCosta didn't do this and we have never seen that kind of coverage for a director on a Marvel movie like we didn't see that ahead of you know Quantumania we didn't see that ahead of Guardians of the Galaxy like none of that existed but suddenly it's all happening and it's like what is and what, what makes Nia DaCosta different from all of these other directors she's a woman and she's black and it's like whether or not this was their intention of what they were doing this is what the optics of what they're doing says so like that's not appropriate and it's it's very infuriating because so many people they they want to like you know g give the opportunity do the, the the pat on the back of like we got this this movie is directed by a woman this movie is directed by a black woman we're doing such a great job well you need to also understand that black women directors exist in Hollywood in a completely different orbit than white male directors. You have to be able to back up that decision and give them additional support because they are working against people already before anyone has ever even seen the movie. Yeah. And it's also doubly insulting that he's like, oh, well, there wasn't any supervision because then what does that say about all of us who did enjoy the movie? Because a lot of us really liked that movie. I was on this podcast talking about how much I liked this movie. Mm -hmm. So like that also feels like he's talking down to me as a viewer as well for enjoying it. It's just, it's, it's, it's so frustrating because whenever we hear these comments from, you know, execs or whatever, it feels like they, they really desperately want to say it was this one thing, because if you say it's a lot of things that can be scary to shareholders. That makes yeah. it seem like, oh no, the the industry is shaky. But that's the reality of the situation. You can't just say, oh, it was all Nia DaCosta's fault because then that also perpetuates this idea of like, well, then we can't let women or black people or black women direct Marvel anymore because that's the problem. That's that's our patient zero. And that's yeah. not true. That is, you, oh my God, it's so yeah. infuriating. Yeah, and like even, you know, I, I acknowledge that like, there's the chance that I'm reading too much into that, even though like you and I are very much on the same page. 
stage. And I'm guessing a lot of people I saw like uh, Peter Ramsey, the director, one of the directors of uh, Into the Spider-Verse and like, you know, people people uh, in Hollywood were reacting to this as well. So it's not just you and I on an island here. But, um, you know, I like even if we give him the benefit of the doubt that he didn't like mean anything personal by that, it's still a contributing to that larger narrative that you're talking about. And like, B, he's the CEO of Disney. You should know better. Like you have to be, and he is savvy enough as a person who is, has been hailed for his entire, you know, tenure as Disney CEO, as being a creative friendly executive, as opposed to somebody like Bob Chapek who blew up the whole uh, Scarlett Johansson uh, lawsuit by like just handling that in like the absolute worst way possible. Everybody was talking about how like, oh, if Iger was in charge, he never would have done anything like this. Um, you know, this would have been handled behind closed doors. It would have been taken care of internally. This never would have gotten this bad. And like now Iger is coming back out and like he put his foot in his mouth during the writer strike when he did that, you know, made that oh whole God, comment yeah. <laughs> uh, that basically turned him into like the temporary villain and took the the attention away from David Zaslav for a minute. And then now he's doing this and like basically tossing his own director under the bus a little bit and talking about supervision on a set. I just, I like, I know that he wouldn't have said that if this was, you know, if the Marvels was directed by uh, a man and specifically a white man, I just know it. Like, you know, yeah. it's just never happened before. So like history has proven that, that it wouldn't happen, you know? So it's just like, Oh God. Yeah. This accumulation of, of, things and uh it's it's just it bothers me pj so yeah. i just wanted to and, talk about and it and it all goes back you know like you said we could be reading too much into this this could you know not have been what he was trying to say but then that goes back to the age-old argument of intent versus impact you may not have intended to say this but the impact of your words like you have to you have to atone to that like you just have to yeah. and the fact that he's not said anything is just like Okay, so that makes me think like you meant what you said. <laughs> yeah, and he it really just boils down to like he should know better. Like this is supposed to be totally, you know, like the the you know talking about adults in the room. Like he was supposed to be the the guy that like everyone looks up to as like the the preeminent Hollywood executive or whatever. Um, and you know, for him to do that is just really really disappointing. So anyway, we can move on from that. But uh, what have you been reading recently, BJ? All right. So we are in the throes of, you know, for your consideration season. And I was lucky to have received Todd Haynes' Rapturous Process. Um, it is a book that kind of chronicles Todd Haynes's uh, career as a director. Um, and it's really interesting because there's, you know, little interviews that he's done with people. Like there's a conversation with him and Kelly Rickart that um, I cannot wait to get to. It's towards the back of the book. So it's like the little treat I'm waiting for. But in the book, there's, you know, writing about, you know, his process and, you know, his inspirations be behind his films. But it also includes like scans of storyboards and on-set photos and all of this like behind the scenes stuff of like what inspired him when making you know any number of his movies and i i love books like this because i love getting to look you know behind the curtain of these directors so there's mm -hmm. a lot of great stuff in there for carol there's stuff for velvet goldmine um and it ends with may december which we'll talk about a little bit later um but i'm about i don't know quarter way through and it's just further solidifying that todd haynes is one of my favorite you know working directors nice yeah this is published by the museum of the moving image and i think it's available i think it's available for like people to buy right now so yeah i think um, so yeah, if you're interested in checking that out, it's called Todd Haynes' Rapturous Process. 
okay, let's get into what we've been watching. You and I both had the chance to see. I, I watched this a long time ago and completely forgot to talk about it on this podcast, but I, I know that you've seen it as well, so I figured now would be a good time to talk about Scott Pilgrim Takes Off, which is the new sort of anime series, um, like a reinterpretation of Brian Lee O'Malley's Scott Pilgrim uh, comic series that was adapted into Scott Pilgrim versus the world, the Edgar Wright movie back in 2010. And now it's on Netflix as this uh, like multi-episode anime series. Um, I think a lot of people were like, oh no, they're just doing Scott Pilgrim again. They're just like remaking the, the Edgar Wright movie again. That is not what this thing is. So uh, I am so excited to see how different this ended up being from the Edgar Wright movie, which I really liked a lot at the time. I haven't rewatched that movie a bunch. Um, but what did you think about Scott Pilgrim Takes Off? Oh, this is like easily one of my favorite new shows of 2023. I love all things Scott Pilgrim. I was really into the books. I love Edgar Wright's movie. I think it is a perfect time capsule of kind of the late aughts, early 2010s, especially in like the music scenes, which I was very much a part of in my early 20s. Um, I also like we have a <laughs> like a running policy on my teen girl movie podcast, This Ends at Prom, which is if uh, if a boy in a band T-shirt has compared you to Ramona Flowers, you may be entitled to compensation um, <laughs> because a lot of my early 20s are defined by people treating me like I'm a Ramona Flowers uh, because, you know, I got fantasy colored hair, just what they do. And <laughs> so seeing the way Scott Pilgrim takes off not only reckons with the Scott Pilgrim universe as like a cultural touch point, but also the type of people that feel seen and identify with these characters and allows Ramona flowers, like all of the Ramona flowers of the world, myself included getting to kind of feel a little bit of vindication. Mm -hmm. Like I like openly wept during the final episode. I was like, Oh man, I did not expect this to hit me the way that it's going to, but Oh, it did. And I'm going to be thinking about that final moment uh for i don't know the next 10 years of my life the same way that i think about moments of scott pilgrim for 10 years mm -hmm. um i i loved it absolutely loved it and if you haven't seen it avoid spoilers go in see it and just let it wash over you it's so so brilliant and funny and there's so many little fun jokes like oh my god young neil suddenly being really into cronenberg like rules yeah. so hard <laughs> yeah the the entire voice cast from edgar wright's movie came back um so there's just and all of those people now almost all of them are like massive stars or much more popular than they were 13 years ago um so it's just really fun to hear all these people come back and and reprise these roles and just do get to do different things with these characters like again without spoiling any, anything this is kind of a detective story in a way and that has Ramona Flowers much, much, much more at the center of the narrative than she was in uh, in the comics and in uh, Edgar Wright's movie. And um, so, yeah, just shout out to Brian Lee O'Malley and Ben David Grabensky, who ran this show and uh, wrote this whole thing and, and sort of like reinterpreted uh, um this beloved property and was able to do the thing that I always want from, you know, IP basically to like move things forward and take chances and like do new things and fascinating things while still retaining the essence of the original thing. And like the, you know, some of the, the jokes and tone and character and whatever that we loved from the first time around. Um, this is, I think you can just point to this as like, uh, an ideal example of what, um, you know, w what can happen when everything goes right for this type of adaptation, you know, the, the idea of like, this is what, um, 
the, the ideal type of scenario for what uh, potential IP adaptations can look like. So totally. Um, and if you are at all invested in the people who worked on this movie, uh, a lot of the, the voice cast, they have been posting videos on like Instagram and Twitter of the behind the scenes. And I mean, I cry a lot. I talk about crying a lot on this podcast, so that should not be news to anybody who has listened <laughs> to more than one episode. Um, but the other night I was just like scrolling on my phone and Allison Pill posted a video of her in the booth recording the like we are sex babam one two three four screaming and <laughs> I like got so verklempt about it I was like oh my god I can't <laughs> believe this is happening again and it's just it's amazing it's wonderful <laughs> <laughs> okay so Scott Pilgrim takes off is streaming on Netflix right now um, another Netflix project that uh, is it on Netflix already like as of today I think as it of might today be. okay so May December is the new Todd Haynes movie um, I saw this movie and I was. Uh, I, I was kind of mesmerized by it, BJ. I don't know if I loved it, but I was certainly captivated by it all the way through. It's such an odd movie, like especially the score, the way that music is used in this and sort of like um, <laughs> slow zooms and like uh, j- especially the way that that music is used to sort of punctuate certain moments. I, I don't, don't think I've seen anything like that before. Um, in certain moments, it reminded me of like the... You know, in Twin Peaks, how there the there's the uh, like the fake soap opera that's within the show mm-hmm. of Twin Peaks. It kind of reminded me of something like that. Um, but what did you think about May December? This is such a fascinating movie. So, with the caveat that I am still awaiting Poor Things and Godzilla minus one, there is a very high probability that May December will be my number one film of the year. Oh wow, I amazing! Am- okay. I am obsessed with this movie. <laughs> um, and as far as how it plays, I described this. I think I think I wrote the ending explainer on this, but I described it as the most expensive lifetime movie you've ever seen because, you know, May, December is loosely based on the real uh, crimes of Mary Kay Letourneau. And the, obviously that is like a tabloid fodder story that people are very obsessed with. So the fact that Todd Haynes chose to present this film with a very similar energy as kind of like a movie that would be on Lifetime where it's just very heightened melodrama but also brilliantly nuanced and with just powerhouse performances like if Charles Melton is not nominated for a best supporting actor I'm setting something on fire with my mind like he's (laughs) so incredible in this movie and it is it's a movie that like tr- makes you feel like you know how you feel about a situation and then immediately like kicks you in the shins and it's like, are you sure that's how you feel about this? Try again. <laughs> so just in case people don't know, um, Julianne Moore plays, uh, I guess, one of the female leads in this. And she, you know, year decades before the movie takes place, uh, was a, a teacher who had sex with a, one of her students and then ended up marrying she him. Works in a, she works in a pet shop with him, which makes it weirder for some reason. Oh, that's reason. true. That's true. That's true. I'm sorry. Yeah, the, Mary the real Kay story Letourneau was a yeah, teacher. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. She, <laughs> yes. The pet store of it all is such a bizarre thing, but and yeah. Okay. So uh, they have the, the, there's this massive age gap and there's a big, uh, becomes like a big tabloid story. And then decades later, Natalie Portman's character comes along because she's going to be playing Julianne Moore's character in uh, I think a movie adaptation of that, of their real life story. So she's trying to sort of be there and take notes and like watch their reactions and and learn about this situation and learn about these characters and and um, model herself after Julianne Moore and try to get all of her uh, tics and mannerisms down and all of that. 
And it's, um, yeah, just a really, like some of the, the shots of like the two of them sitting side by side and uh, Natalie Portman's character, like mirroring and, and trying to do exactly what Julianne Moore's character is doing. Like the, it's just such, um, yeah, just really, really fascinating. I, I just could not take my eyes off of this movie, but uh, I, I, I don't really know how much more we can say BJ without like getting, you know, further into yeah, it. It's, um, it's just, it's, it's remarkable. It's a remarkable piece of art. It is like a morality minefield, which are my favorite types of movies where it forces you to sit in your discomfort for an entire runtime. I love movies like that. Cause I don't know, I'm a sicko and that's just what I like. <laughs> um, but I also think like it's, it's, it's a beautiful film. Like it is so messed up in terms of what it's, you know, subject matter is, but it is still like, a beautiful assessment of just the human condition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, awesome. Okay, so that's May, December. It's on Netflix right now. You also had a chance to watch something called Love Has Won, The Cult of Mother God. What is this? All right, so this is a um, a, a mini doc series on Max. Um, so I don't know if you remember this, but a few years back, there was a thing that made a bunch of headlines about how a like kind of hippie cult leader, uh, her body was found mummified and was being carted around the country by her followers and she had been dead for like three weeks uh no i definitely never heard about this <laughs> okay well that happened a few years ago and the cult this this doc is about that cult the cult is called love has one um the cult of mother god mother god is this woman named amy carlson she was like pretty much like a very normal person like they interview her family and she just kind of got sucked into this like new agey weirdness and she started a cult. But what is really upsetting and like fascinating, but like more so upsetting than anything is that the interview includes interviews with, you know, the people who carried her body around and were part of her cult. And even though she is dead, they are fully still in, like they believe all of the, the madness that they came up with of like, we are all living in 3D and they're living in 5D and when they die, their body ascends and there's also this weirdness where they believe that like Elvis was her son and Trump is her dad and Robin Williams' ghost talks to her. Like it's, be like I, it's fucked. Wow. Like, I don't know how what? else to put it. Um, <laughs> and it's also just very, very sad because, you know, this this person was was dying um like actively dying and she at one point you know is like hey i kind of need help i think i'm dying and they're like no you don't you're fine and it's just like what is happening mm, mm. um and it's just it's it's i've never seen a cult doc where the people who are still actively in are like they're not looking back and being like yeah that this is how i got sucked into it like they fully still believe it right and yeah that's that's like the uh the standard thing for cult documentaries is like people being like oh i i'm so lucky i got out of that or whatever like looking back on th there have been so many like that yeah it's it's really weird like there are people who did get out and they're talking about it but the majority of the talking heads are people who are still actively in it. These people still have like active social media presences where they do like live streams and talk about like their bananas beliefs. Um, like it's, it's very weird, like very weird to watch. And uh, I was like cleaning my house and I was like, oh, I'll just put this on. I kind of know this story. And then I just got sucked in. And <laughs> based on my Twitter feed, other people are also getting sucked in. So I don't feel as weird, but 
like it's unbelievable. Like it's one of those things where you watch it and I'm like, I can't believe this is real. Like most cult things, it's like, oh, I kind of get the mindset. Like, I'm, you know, not for me, but I see how somebody could get sucked into this. I have no idea how any of these people got here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So that's called Love Has Won the Cult of Mother God. And then what's the last thing you want to talk about? And the last thing I want to talk about is I finally got to see one of my favorite films of all time. I've written about it numerous times on Slash Film, but I got to see Satoshi Kon's Perfect Blue on the big screen. And ironically, it was in uh, introed and, uh, you know, hosted by Ben David Grabinski of uh, <laughs> Scott Pilgrim Takes Off. But uh, they were showing it at Vidiots. It was a sold out screening. I'd never seen it on the big screen. And I think over half the audience had never seen it. So I was watching other people watch this movie for the first time. People were gasping. At one point, like a grown man screamed and then was like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Like he apologized because it was, you know, something caught him off guard and he yelled. But uh, God, that movie, it's its perfect. Like it's, it's always been a perfect film and seeing it on the big screen just really, really hammers home how good that movie is. <laughs> Man, I'm so jealous because I really I've been waiting to see this because I've never seen it. Um, and I it came to a theater that was like near me, but like 30 minutes away. And I just like couldn't get to the theater on the night that it was playing. So I ended up just missing it. So the only Satoshi Kon movie I've ever seen is Millennium Actress, which HT recommended to me years ago. And I love that movie. Um, but I've not seen that uh, Perfect Blue or Paprika yet or Tokyo Godfathers. And I know that like those are three like totemic movies that I'm supposed to see. And I, uh, I'm i so disappointed that I missed out on that. But I'm glad that you got to see this movie, especially because I know how much you love this one. You, you have written about this and, and talked about this. This has been like one of your jams for a long time. Oh yeah, this is this is one of my my favorite movies. And although Satoshi Kon is no longer with us, I'm sure he's thrilled in the afterlife to know that I finally saw it on the big screen and not the way that I originally saw it, which was illegally downloading it off of LimeWire when I was like 15. Hell um, yeah! So I'm sure he's <laughs> thrilled. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you've never seen Tokyo Godfathers, uh, it's a Christmas movie, so watch it this holiday season. Give yourself oh, that good. treat. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I'll just wait until, uh, you know, the, the swirl of um, screener season and awards and all that stuff is over. Uh, but yeah, maybe I can sneak Tokyo Godfathers into my like Christmas, uh, my very few amount of Christmas movies that I try to sneak in like right before, um, you know, mix in during the, the whole awards chaos. So uh, thanks for that heads up. Uh, okay. So uh, we're almost done here. Let's talk a, a little bit about what you've been eating recently. Anything interesting? <laughs> Um, so I've been eating my weight in funeral potatoes, also known as hash brown casserole. This is a Midwest delicacy. Do you know what this is? <laughs> so I, I've never heard the term, or I, I've heard the term funeral funeral potatoes, but I never knew what it was. I didn't realize that it was an alternate name for hash brown casserole. I mean, being from the South, I've definitely uh, seen my fair of hash brown casserole. I never liked it as a kid, but I feel like I actually would like it now. Um, so that's where I am with it. Okay, good. So it's called funeral potatoes in the Midwest because it's just a dish that people tend to bring to funerals when it's like, sorry, someone died. Here's a casserole. Mm -hmm. uh, funeral potatoes uh, ends up there. It is uh, one of my absolute favorite things. I make it every year for like Thanksgiving because uh, I'm Midwest trash. Live Midwest trash, die Midwest trash. Um, but for those that don't know what it is, it is hash brown and cream of chicken soup and sour cream and cheese and onion and 
you know, pepper. It is the beigest food. Oh, and then you got to top it with cornflakes, of course. Um, cornflakes. Wow. No, I've never heard. I've never oh seen that God. as an addition. Like that's what you need. Like you have to have the cornflake crust. Otherwise, it's just it's not as good. And uh, so I made that, and I ended up making way too much. So I had a dish that I brought for. Uh, I do like a friendsgiving here in LA for people who don't you know travel during the holiday. And so I made that for everybody. It got completely eaten, but I had a complete separate dish that should have fed like eight people, but it was just in my house. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to waste food. So I've just been (laughs) eating hash brown casserole for like (laughs) at least one meal a day. Yeah, that's awesome. My wife and I did this thing where we made our own turkey after eating turkey with both of our families on Thanksgiving. Like we, we made a new one on Saturday after Thanksgiving and then were able to sort of like just... Um, the way my wife put it was we're ship of Theseusing our Thanksgiving where it's like a <laughs> rotating series of leftovers where by the end, none of it is actually leftover from Thanksgiving day, but it's all just sort of like a scattered assortment of things that we're basically just able to stretch out the concept of eating Thanksgiving dinner food and leftovers all the way out into, you know, like a full week after Thanksgiving. So highly recommend That's that really experience. Smart. Yeah. I ended up buying this thing. So we have like Ralph's out here, which is Kroger everywhere else, but they were selling this like cranberry dessert thing and it was like cranberry pineapple walnuts it like is just in one of those like little plastic things that's usually next to like i don't know macaroni salad or whatever at the deli section Mm. and i just got that because i was like oh this sounds good and i've just been eating it with a spoon i'm like this is delicious (laughs) awesome well uh yeah maybe we'll uh inspire people to um to continue to drag out Thanksgiving as long as they can food-wise. So uh, I think that's going to do it for today's episode. You can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week.